I'm going to read our gospel reading for us today from Luke 4. Verses 1 through 13. This is right after Jesus' baptism. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Father, God, we need this word today. We need your word today. We need you today. And so I pray, Lord, that as we come before your word, especially that from the prophet Zechariah, we would see ourselves, that we would know ourselves. And as we come to know you, Lord, that we would entrust ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name. Well, this uh, central vision from Zechariah, um, again, they've, there's seven or eight visions, depending on who you ask, and they kind of work their way into the middle. So the first and the last sort of match up. They both talk about horses. And then the second and the second to last kind of match up and so on. And today we're in the central vision. And the central vision that Zechariah has, again, these are all given to him. It seems from the text they're given to him more or less in one night. Um, kind of a, a heck of an evening, I would say. Um, but he has all of these dreams or nightmares or visions or whatever you want to call them. And in this one, he sees Joshua. And Joshua is the high priest. He's the one among all the Israelites. All of the Israelites have come back from Babylon. And they've come into this place where they're supposed to rebuild the city. Their city is nothing but rubble. The temple is torn down. All the nice cinder blocks in these walls, all these timbers, everything is just a pile on the ground. Everything good and nice and precious has been taken from it, and everything that's left is just rubble and dust. And the people who did that to them in the first place are now allowing them to return and to rebuild. But there's tension, there's problems, there's politics, there's relational dynamics, all those kinds of things that, when you, that go into rebuilding a temple or rebuilding a city. Zechariah begins to have these dreams. Right at the pinnacle, he sees Joshua. If you go and read Ezra 5, you find that this Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
is the one who actually rebuilt the altar itself. He was the one whose hands were on the stone rebuilding the very place that the sacrifices would be made to God. And I think Joshua realizes at some point that that kind of work, that that kind of sacrifice, that kind of altar building is, a, is an awesome responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility because it's, it's good to be given tasks that are big and important. But sometimes you're given tasks that are bigger and important that feel too big and too important. And you don't really feel like the right person to do those tasks. You don't really feel like you're the person who's there to carry out the thing that God needs done. And so what Zechariah sees in his vision is maybe something that you felt a lot. He sees Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, standing, it says, before God. Now that, that word, standing before, kind of can go two ways. It means that when a priest would go in to serve in the temple, it was said that they were standing before God. So they had all kinds of things that they were supposed to do. They had to burn incense. They had to make sure, first of all, before they even started any of it, they had to make sure that they were clean, right? They had to make sure that they had bathed, that they had washed, that they didn't just go like, you know, do whatever they're doing at their house, sweep things out and empty out the muck bucket and, and sl- take out the horse slop and whatever, and then walk into the temple and just start living their life and worshiping as though it's no different, right? The work that happens before God requires some sort of preparation. It requires us to be, in the language of the Old Testament, it requires us to be clean. Now, that doesn't mean guiltless, right? But it does mean that we have prepared ourselves to stand before God. So the high priest had certain clothes that he's supposed to wear, Those clothes couldn't have just been rolled around in the dirt. There should have been a proper respect paid to them. He's had to wash his hands and his face and his neck, these different things. So the fact that Joshua comes into and it says is standing before God. Mind you, the temple's not even built. The altar is there, but it's just out in the open air and the dust is still kicking around. It would be so easy. We just got back from a week of camping. It is so easy to get dirty. (laughs) right? It's so easy to get filthy without even trying to get filthy. And so here's Joshua standing before the Lord in the sense of leading the people in worship. But he's also standing before the Lord in the sense of being on trial. It's actually a courtroom scene that we get in Zechariah 3. He's standing up before God and his heavenly council. It says the angel of the Lord is in front of him. Okay? And then who is next to him? Rosalie, you read it. Satan, the accuser. And that's actually what, that's what Satan means. That Satan is a name. It's not so much a name as is a title, right? It's, it's actually his title. It means accuser. It means like, you know, district attorney, right? It's the one who is given to prosecute you. And all throughout scripture, what Satan does is prosecute the people of God. 
Satan's job is to poke holes in their goodness and in their righteousness. Go read the book of Job. What is Satan doing? He's saying, I know he looks righteous, but what if you do this? Right? I know he looks like he loves you, but what if you take away everything he loves? I know he looks faithful to you, but what if you make his life really hard? What if you make everybody curse him? What if you give him really terrible friends? What if, what if, what if? He's constantly there saying, well, let's arrange situations this way to show that Job really is not righteous. Because if I can show that Job is not righteous, I can show that God is not good. That's the accuser's whole mission. To demonstrate that God is not really good. And so... What are the questions that he asks, asks Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Right? It's just that seed of doubt. Did God really say? Same thing in Job. Same thing in Luke 4. If you are the Son of God. Let me set up some conditions. If you are who you say you are, then these things will take place. You'll throw yourself down from the temple and it won't be any problem. You'll turn this, these stones into bread. If, if, if. I'm going to set up the conditions that are going to create doubt in your mind, ultimately about the goodness of God. He wants to create this sort of double reality This reality in which we see what is right in front of us and don't believe it. Right? And so he takes Joshua and stands him up before God. Joshua, who lived much of his life in Babylon, who probably was not always faithful to the Torah, Right, Joshua, who probably broke some of those laws, who probably ate some of the food he wasn't supposed to eat when he was in Babylon, right, and who probably found it a little too easy to be respectful of some of those Babylonian gods, who maybe bowed the knee to the king was not quite as faithful as Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were. Joshua, who, even though building the altar, let's put a D. Can we do it? I don't write these upside down that often. Is that the right way? Okay, good. <laughs> who probably doubted the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Right? Joshua, who's probably a lot like us. <laughs> Some of us who have been liars and adulterers. <laughs> and we've been cowards. Right. And then ultimately, not even just the stuff that's sinful, but the stuff that just gets on you, like while you're camping, right? It's just the stuff that's in the air. Where you don't even realize that you're just kind of living your life and all of a sudden you look down and you're greedy and a lot more focused on money and on your kids being successful 
then you are on the kind of faithfulness and generosity that we know God requires. And you know what happens every week? Sunday rolls around. (laughs) And it's time to go to church again. And so then you walk in the doors of the church. And maybe somebody's up here who's leading worship beautifully and powerfully. And you just know that you're not really fit to be here. You know that you're a sinner, right? And you hear that voice in your head and on your shoulder that says, you should not really be here. This is not the place for you. This is the place for good people who do the right thing. This is the place for people whose clothes are clean, who have good pants and a good shirt, who don't show up and make God look bad. And so often that's exactly the finger that the accuser points at us. He says, you being here makes God look bad. You being here is going to mess it up for everybody else. You're the problem. All of this would work if you weren't here. Joshua, we could probably rebuild this temple if you weren't such an idiot about building the altar. But you messed it up, and now the politics are wrong, and now Darius is not supporting us the way he's supposed to, and everything's going to go to pot because you were not the person that God needed you to be. What we don't see so often is what Revelation 12 tells us. Did you pick that up? Revelation 12 is a beautiful, beautiful chapter. In that chapter, it gives us a picture of a woman with these stars in her crown and the sun and the moon. It's a picture of the church, of Israel, of the people of God altogether. Right? Israel and the church united. And it says that this woman gives birth to a baby. You may not have known that's actually a Christmas text. This woman gives birth to a child, and the dragon, the accuser, Satan, that old serpent is waiting there to snap him up. He's waiting there to take him down. That's all he wants. And yet at just the right moment, the Son of God, who's born of God's people, the church and of Israel, is swooped up and carried away to safety, taken to the right hand of God, where Satan, that dragon, that accuser, can never reach him. And the people, it says, are taken away into the wilderness, into safety, protected. So you see, we are involved in this kind of cosmic thing. We so often think our stuff is just about us. We so often think it's just about our sadness or our cowardice or our fear. But what we don't realize, it's a question of whose team you're on and whose name is on the back of your jersey and whose name you're choosing to be on. In this cosmic story between the God who is victorious and Satan, 
the accuser, the enemy, whose team are you on? That's the bad news. Let's look at what Zechariah says. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, who, again, I don't have time to talk about it all. That's Jesus, okay? The angel of the Lord standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, (laughs) the Lord said to Satan, you hear that? The Son of God, Jesus himself, says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. can't tell you how many times I've come to church on Sunday morning. I felt unworthy to be here. Felt unworthy to lead. Felt like I hadn't been the person or the man or the husband or the dad or the friend that I should have been throughout the week. And then to stand up in front of people and try to be an example. Try to be something or somebody worth listening to. It just feels like hypocrisy. Here's the thing. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. You guys, we're sinners. And we're broken. And we don't have what it takes. And our clothes are not clean on our own. We're Joshua. Even those of us who aren't high priests, none of us are high priests. Even those of us who are not high priests are Joshua. Filthy and unworthy to stand before the Lord. Not having the garments, not having the cleanness, not having what we ought to have to stand up there and say, I am an example of God and his people to this world. But what rebukes the accuser? That God chose you. That God chose you. That God picked you. That God loved you. That God still loves you. And that Satan's accusations have no power over the love of God. Because in this courtroom, there's Joshua, the defendant. There's Satan, the accuser. There's the angel of the Lord, who is both judge and defense attorney. Do you see that? The judge stands up for the victim. The judge stands up for the defendant. The judge says, look, Joshua is mine. I've chosen him and I love him. And yes, he's guilty of what you're accusing him of, but no, you don't know the whole story. Let them put a clean turban. Oh, sorry. Remove the filthy garments from him, right? <laughs> Remove the filthy garments from him. <laughs> I should have, there should have been a front row warning this week. <laughs> right? 
Remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, this is Zechariah in the dream. Zechariah speaks up. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. You see, God takes Joshua, and he makes him worthy. God takes Joshua, and he makes him clean. God takes the priests and the people who are not clean. Joshua is not just about Joshua. He's all of Israel. And he takes all of them. He says, I know that they're messy. I know that they're filthy. I know that they've dropped the ball. But this was never about their righteousness. It was always about my righteousness. My righteousness in them. My purity in them. My courage in them. My cleanness and purity at work in them. It's always been about what we're able and willing to receive from the Lord. Not what we're able to make for ourselves. Well, I guess it's two shirts down today. <laughs> That's all right. Let them put a clean turban on his head. You know what was on the turban? This is from Exodus 28. You know what was on the front of the turban? They'd take this cloth and they'd wrap it up. And they'd put it down on the, on the high priest's head when he walked into the temple. And he would only go there once a year. Once a year, because to go in more often would have caused danger. It would have been a fearful thing to get that close to God that often. You might get too used to it. They put a turban on his head, and there was a plaque right on the front of that turban. It said, holy unto the Lord. Holy unto the Lord. That whatever else you might see in the sky, whatever else you might see in this people, you might see people who are just so committed and devoted to their sin that for hundreds of years you're looking at them going, what in the world are they doing? How can they not see how much God loves them? How can they not see how much God has died for them? That might be all that you can see, but God sees those words written across our forehead, holy unto the Lord, holy unto the Lord. And the only thing that's necessary for us to come into that life is to trust and believe that Jesus has died for us, that it's his blood that has washed us clean. Not our own water, because we can't do it. It's like trying to get clean while you're camping. You just wash and you wash and you wash, and then you realize you're just washing more dirt into these clothes rather than washing the dirt out of the clothes. Like, there's just a limit. I only have dirty water to wash with. That's my righteousness. Those are my efforts. But God, with the blood of his son, is able to bleach even the worst sinner. Is able to make us pure and white as snow. So Paul says, in Colossians 3, I used to wonder why he talks about laundry so much. But here it is. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another as if one has a complaint against another. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
of all these put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what we're to put on. That's what we're to wear. Gratitude, forgiveness, holiness, love. The fact that we know that we are the beloved ones makes us able to love one another even sacrificially. Zechariah doesn't stop there. That's not the end. It would be a good end if he did. But that's not where he ends this vision. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Do you know what that promise means? If you will walk in my way and keep my courts, I will give you the right of access. Where is Joshua? In this vision, he's in the heavenly court. In this vision, he's standing before the Son of God. He's standing before God himself. And I'm afraid that too many of us have let it lie there. We're like, Jesus, get this sinful stuff off of me. Get me into clean garments again so that I can come and worship here, so that I can be in your presence. It's like, that's great. God absolutely wants to do that. God wants to forgive you. He wants you to know that freedom. You're invited to He then tells Joshua, if you will follow my ways and keep my charges, I will give you charge over my courts. You shall rule my house, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This is a cosmic thing. This is bigger than just my own feelings about myself. This is bigger than my own just place in the world. This is about how I interact with eternity. And just as there is an enemy and an adversary that's been at us from the beginning and who will be at us until, <laughs> until the end, when Christ is finally victorious... We are invited, given right of access, even among heavenly beings. Do you know how high your calling is? Do you know how important you are in this story? You, like Joshua, you're invited into the very throne room of God. Into the very presence of the eternal and the infinite. And Satan's lie is that it's just about all this stuff. It's just about us feeling ashamed. It's just about us feeling guilty. And we don't realize that's just the first step. Jesus has called us, built us for eternity. How dare we say something like that? This is what he says next. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring 
my servant, the branch. That's from Isaiah 11. A shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse. Okay, that shoot grows into a branch. That branch is Jesus. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, they're rebuilding the temple. It's the cornerstone. With seven eyes, go read Revelation 5. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, doesn't have two eyes like a regular lamb. He's got seven. It's kind of a crazy image, but that's what it says. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So Jesus, who is the branch, who is the stone, servant that Zechariah talks about, he's the one who does it. He's the one who does it for us. He's the one who sets us free from that shame. He's the one who gives us clean clothes. He's the one who gives us the right of access. He's the one who makes us clean to come into the presence of God. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is a kingdom promise. That we who are so consumed with our sin, that we who are so turned inward on ourselves, that all we see is our guilt and our shame, that we will have enough space in our lives to open up our homes, our orchards, our vineyards, to our friends and our neighbors. That our lives become a sign of the hospitality of God. That we, who have no right to come there on our own, but have every right to come there in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden become hosts. Hosts who invite people to the table in the same way that Jesus invites us to his table. love Logan to come up and um, we're going to do that song Graves into Gardens a couple times, a couple times. Um, but before we come to the table, I just, I just want to know if anybody needs to pray and receive Christ today. Um, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and you're welcome to come forward if you want. You can stay in your seats as well. But if anybody needs to receive Christ for the first time or for the second time or for the hundredth time, just to say, Jesus, I need you in me. Jesus, I need you to deal with all of this. I need you to shut Satan up. I need you to deal with the accuser. I need you to free me from this shame. Know that Jesus is eager to do that, that he loves you so much that he died for you so that you could be free from that. But even further, if you're somebody who has done that and lived that and maybe struggled with that, and you say, Lord, I want to be the kind of person who has an openness in my life, who has a margin, who has a fig tree and a vine that I can invite others into. Know that you are invited to this table, not just for yourself, but so that others would be changed in and through you. Lord God, thank you for the ways that you have saved us, for the ways that you have made us clean. And God, I ask that if there's anyone here who needs to receive that grace today, they wouldn't hesitate because there is no life outside of you. There is nothing good other than you. There is nothing better than you. Lord, we put ourselves at your feet. We know that we're in your courtroom. We know this is your world. 
And we pray, Lord Jesus, for your help. If you've never received Christ into your life before, if you've tried to live this life on your own, under your own power, washing your own clothes, and you're just tired, you're just tired of trying to make it work that way, would you pray with me today? Lord God in heaven, I cannot do this by myself. I cannot clean myself. I cannot make myself forgiven. I need your help. Lord, I want to be in your presence. I want to be with you. Lord, would you come into my life and clean me and purify me and sanctify me. Lord, be not just the one who saves me, but the one who runs my life. If you prayed that prayer today with every other head bowed and eye closed, I just want you to know that we can't live this life by ourselves. Would you raise your hand if you prayed that prayer? Thank you. And if you're somebody who's been a Christian but knows that you need more, you need to live in that kind of power, you need to live in that kind of hope, you need to have God really and truly say to the accuser, I rebuke you. Would you pray with me today? Lord God, I've been at this a while. And I need your help. I need your help to bring freedom. I need your help to bring peace. Lord God, I need to be made new and fresh in you. God, would you rebuke every hold the accuser has on me? Would you cast out of every corner of my life any sin that Satan may have established in me? Would you make me whole and complete and entire? Would you allow me to be devoted completely and fully to you? If that's the prayer of your heart today, would you raise your hand so that I can connect? Thank you, thank you, thank you. God, we come to this year table knowing that we need you to feed us, that we need you to give us life. In Jesus' name, amen. There we go. The communion supper instituted by our Lord and Savior.